consolidation is clearly something that you see in every field as it matures. And the IVF world is clearly going from what was perceived even five to 10 years ago as a very small, niche, kind of out of the way, out of the mainstream field to much more central to people's thinking. So I think, you know, fighting consolidation is not going to be a winning strategy in the long run. Welcome to Inside Reproductive Health, the shop talk of the fertility field. Here you'll hear authentic and unscripted conversations about practice management, patient relations, and business development from the most forward-thinking experts in our field. Wall Street and Silicon Valley both want your patience, but there is a plan if you are willing to take action. Visit fertilitybridge.com to learn about the first piece of building a fertility marketing system, the goal and competitive diagnostic. Now, here's the founder of Fertility Bridge and the host of Inside Reproductive Health, Griffin Jones. Today on Inside Reproductive Health, I'm joined by David Wolf, the Chief Executive Officer and President of Hamilton Thorne. David has also been a senior level executive of many companies over his 20 years of his career, including he was a member of the founding management of Elcom International, played a key role in growing that business to $800 million in revenues over the course of four years and a successful IPO. David was Chief Operating Officer of JWP Information Services, where he built the operational infrastructure to support that company's growth from $250 million to $1.4 billion in sales, and President and COO of NECO, N-E-E-C-O, Inc., $250 million business and IT distribution and services also that was purchased by JWP. Now he's in the fertility field at the helm of Hamilton Thorne. Mr. Wolf, David, welcome to Inside Reproductive Health. Well, thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. When you and I spoke before the show, you mentioned that you had come to the field from a business background. So had I. That's clearly evident in your bio. Talk to us about how you ended up in the field of reproductive health. So like many things in life, it involves some level of personal relationships and coincidence. I first got involved with Hamilton Thorne, you know, in the early 2000s when the company was looking at growing its business and financing. My background, a lot of my background is in corporate finance and a combination of kind of corporate finance and operations as well as technology from more of an IT hardware and software perspective. And I was asked to help advise the team on some activities they were doing and got more and more involved over the years and including assisting the group with its successful IPO in 2009. In 2011, the founding CEO was looking at retiring. And I joined the team on a, at that point on a full-time basis in late 2011. And it's been a short or long eight years, and it's been an exciting ride. I'm interested in how you prioritized the learning of the clinical and lab operations side of things. Because if you tried to learn everything, that would mean that you got the letters MD after your name, that you did four-year residency in OBGYN and a three-year REI fellowship. And the same was true for me when I came into the field. I was a marketer for other categories, started working with an IVF center, and then started working with more. And the way that I prioritized my learning was what the patients were talking about. So I would start with what the patients were talking about most and then learn more 
from there. And then I had to learn the business case for the for speaking with clients. So I learned what was the highest margin and biggest challenges. How did you prioritize learning about the clinical and lab side of things? Yeah, so I came at it in in a way from a completely opposite direction. I started with the the, the business side and converged on the the practice side. And I think either of them is, is I think in my view, either of them is is legitimate. In so there's two things to talk about. One is I tend to be highly focused as an individual and try to run the business in a highly focused basis. So one of the first things we did are when when I joined the business was really focus the activities of the Hamilton Thorne company on not only the ART space, because we had our fingers in a number of other interesting areas, so really focused on ART, with a, again, on clinical ART, and focused in the lab. So a lot of what went on in maybe clinical practice at that time was just outside our area. We just didn't spend a second thinking about that, just, you know, from a, from a business perspective, obviously, it's important from an overall understanding of the field perspective. Secondly, I was relatively lucky in the sense that when I joined the business, Hamilton Thorne was a much smaller company than it was to, is today. It's we're running, you know, kind of in the mid thirty million dollars of revenues with a fairly comprehensive product portfolio. At that point, we were mid single digits, primarily selling lasers and CASA systems. So the activities that I really had to get involved in very early were fairly limited, which was understanding our specific solutions, understanding where they could grow, and you know, also the competitive landscape, where we could help with with out, you know, improving outcomes. And over time, as through a com- with a combination of new product development and acquisition, we now have a fairly comprehensive solution for the laboratory, providing nearly all of the equipment and a lot of the consumables that are used on a day-to-day basis in the lab. So I was, as I said, I was somewhat fortunate that the educational process could be extended over a period of years as we continue to add these products and continue to think about what were the needs in the lab. You're a serial executive, it seems. The term serial entrepreneur gets used a lot, and maybe that applies as well, but you've been an executive for a lot of different companies. So one of the tenets that I see from really talented executives and really talented entrepreneurs is they just know who to hire more quickly because they need that transfer of knowledge and expertise. So when you're coming into the field for the first time, how did you build that team to say, okay, I've got to get caught up post haste. And these are the people that are going to help me do it. How did you, how do you select, I guess what, even before I ask how you selected, that's question number two. Question is one is what's the baseline of knowledge that you have to be able to select the right team properly that is going to be the ones who transfer the expertise and knowledge to your organization and to you? Well, I'm, I'm going to answer the question. I may go in the, in the opposite order, but I think we'll get to the same place. Again, I think I was very fortunate with the the, the Hamilton Thorne business, which is the found, the original U.S.-based business that's an equipment manufacturer and the foundational business for the entire Hamilton Thorne group to have an extremely accomplished team. I think if there were criticism of the team, it was, somewhat, as I said, somewhat lack of focus. 
somewhat driven by the natural entrepreneurial enthusiasm of the founding CEO and somewhat driven by investors who are always saying, hey, we've got to go after the next big thing. So in my view, again, bringing focus to the business, I was able to, I would modestly say, get get the best out of a really, really strong team. So when, when I joined, we didn't really have to do a lot of new recruiting, a lot of new hiring. It was really a question of how do we retain the people that we have, refocus their efforts, and then recruit around, I wouldn't say around the edges, but recruit over time to people to fill out the team. From a growth perspective, we've been growing a lot through acquisition. Again, typically bringing in very, very talented people, sometimes with a virtual entrepreneurial bent than companies need when they get a little more mature. But sometimes that entrepreneurial you know, bent is, is very, very powerful because it gives you that level of you know, enthusiasm and free thinking that is not always available in a more mature business. So again, I think we've we, the way we've grown, we've tended to have a you know a very strong talent pool that has been internally generated. Where we've tended to look to recruit outside have been in areas that are very hard to you know kind of grow from the seat of the pants. So regulatory has been a big focus of us, where we've been hiring a lot of regulatory resources. And that's a, a function as well as the, the field has become much more, much more highly regulated, both in, in, in the U.S. and internationally, where many countries that formerly had, had uh, either followed U.S. or European regulation have now adopted their own. And the regulations just generally get more, more complex and, and more stringent. So that can be an example where we've, we've had to, to look from outside. And in that case, I think it's a question of if you're doing a decent job of recruiting and reading resumes, meeting people, you can generally assume you're working with a talent pool that is qualified. So then the question is, how do you find the person who has the right fit for the organization and work within the culture of the organization we have? And that is a, a talent that maybe I have, but also an approach where we don't have one person, just one person interview people, a person would interview up and down across the entire organization. And I like to sit down with a candidate at some point and, and look them in the eye and ask them, you know, we've tried to be as open with you about the organization, open with you about what our strengths and challenges are. Now you have to be open with yourself and with, and with me. Is this an organization where you're really going to be successful? And that's something that is important for you know a, a self-reflected person to, to look at. You mentioned acquisitions a couple times. What are some acquisitions that you've made since being at the helm of Hamilton Thorne and how have they contributed to the overall scope of the organization? Sure. So we've done five acquisitions over the last five years, so about one a year, which I think is a cadence that can make sense for a company you know, of our size with our resources, both financial resources and human resources, and as well is a cadence where one can integrate those acquisitions on a, into, the, into a, you know, a, glo- a growing global organization in a way that, that can be done sensibly. I think too slow and it's not a bad thing, but you know, you're not, you, you know, then acquisition is just a, you know, kind of a sideline to the activity too quickly. And you can see, you know, just stress in the organization because there aren't a lot of organizations that can really do multiple acquisitions on a, a really, really quick basis and not have 
you know, difficulty, if not, if not, not real problems. And that's in not only in, in our field, but in any field where you're looking at bringing in additive capabilities and additive products. If you're looking at, maybe we'll talk about this a little later, like the, the clinic consolidation where clinics to a certain extent are more or less similar. I think you can probably do a quicker set of acquisitions there because everybody's really kind of pulling at the same more and trying to do the same thing. Whereas, again, I'll talk about our acquisitions. We've done a couple of relatively small acquisitions. We bought a great little product from Perkin Elmer, the OOSIGHT system, which is O-O-S-I-G-H-T. So a little bit of play on words, which allows you to visualize structures in OOSIGHTs and eggs that you can't see with conventional microscopy and therefore be able to, it's not quite a diagnostic, but certainly be able to look at and develop information about about those, um, about the development <clears throat> of those eggs. So you can see spindle structures and other structures. And there's some looking right now, this could be actually an important part of the puzzle of IVF. I think it's just going to solve the whole problem where you can correlate spindle health to successful outcomes. We also just recently bought an air purification business, the Xander business from a great entrepreneur, Fred Xander. And again, rolled that into our business. We've done a couple of other much larger acquisitions over the years. We bought a business in Germany, it's primarily a consumables business called Gynamed. So now in Germany, we have both a direct sales organization that serves Central Europe, as well as a line of primarily media products, but a host of other products that we're right in the process now of getting qualified for sale through 510K clearance in the U.S. And most recently, just last month, we bought a business in the U.K., the Planer business, which is an incubation and cryopreservation business, again, primarily a hardware business, also strong, strong monitoring products which will allow us to do the two things we like to do, develop a direct sales operation or expand our direct sales operation in the UK, as well as provide another range of products that we can offer throughout our entire Hamilton Thorne family of companies. I wasn't even thinking of going down this rabbit hole, but you're in so many different places, a direct sales operation in the UK, a consumables company in Germany. That means that and just by nature of you having the resume that you do, you've gotten good at delegating. It's one thing that I advise my clients on to a degree, to the degree that I can. And one that as someone who's in a five-year-old company is myself continually getting better at doing. Give us some golden nuggets of wisdom that you feel are pretty transferable regarding delegation? Because I imagine that you have your hand in the, the most sensitive parts of these deals, but you simply can't be in everything. So give us a little bit of your wisdom on delegation. Yeah. So I, I think I can talk about it as much from an operational perspective. And then if we wanted, we can talk about it on the transaction side. So from an operational perspective, it's clear that if you as a company expands, it's certainly in the way ours has, as you've described, with a wide range of product focus and geographic focus, it is absolutely impossible to keep your fingers in every pie. So, you know, there are certain people who just aren't capable of giving up micromanaging, and there are certain people who are capable of giving up micromanaging. So I think you got to understand the progress of your business over a period of years. And I think it's a business concept of zoom in and zoom out. You've got to understand where you zoom out, take take a look at the big picture, 
delegate decision making to whether it's you know the management team, the operational team, the sales team, whatever specific thing you're looking at, and understand that that person will not always make the decisions that that you would have made, and that but that's okay. It's not certainly during my career, I've learned I've made a lot of bad decisions. So just because I wouldn't have made the same decision doesn't make it wrong. And even if it is not the perfect decision, it's still much more important that company progresses, things move forward rather than things slow down because everybody's always waiting for, I just kind of, you know, management, management approval. So I think that's the key thing. And then there's the zoom in side, which is the ability to figure out when you really do have to be involved. And then obviously follow through on that involvement. Don't just parachute in, you know, stir the pot and then, then disappear. You make the commitment to, to, to zoom in and really work on a project, product or problem or pro, you know, process. You've got to commit to do that. And I suppose the, the key is figuring out and, and being somewhat consistent on when you step back, allow the business to run and, you know, and, and again, trust your, trust your team. And when you need to get involved and not necessarily because of lack of trust of the team, but because it's such a critical issue or such a potentially long strategic uh, a problem or, pro- or opportunity of really such long-term strategic significance that it's important to spend the time. Do you agree with Jack Welch's axiom that if you can do, if someone can do something 80% as well as you can, that you have to delegate it? So I didn't hear that. I've never heard that axiom. I don't know about the percentage, but yeah, absolutely. You know, it's again, if you, first of all, and I, I'm not, I don't know about Jack Welch's personal perception of his own skills, but I know my personal perception of my own skills are sometimes inflated. So the idea that I can do something at 100% and therefore the same person does it 80% is good enough is is probably just wrong. You know, <laughs> Reality is there may be some things I can, but a lot of things I'm not doing 100% either. It's just either I don't know, I don't know enough to know that that's the case or, or you know, you know you're overall and you're fairly successful. It doesn't really matter. So clearly, it's a my my corollary really would be similar to that. Though you know, you can't expect everybody to do everything you would do. You just have to choose the right people and give them. You know, overall, make sure everybody understands the strategic direction of the company, and allow your people to to be successful. It seems like most of the businesses that you've been involved with have been ones in high regulatory fields. Is there a tension between the common spirit of entrepreneurship and excellence in certain regulatory schema or in the advancement of medical treatment for because especially when we're talking about startups and a lot of companies in the consumer sector, the way that those are launched and validated against the market place is very antithetical to how medicine is approved and processed. And we we can't just do human experimenting. And I think that rigor is so ingrained in the clinician that when it comes time to other segments of the business, such as marketing or automating a few processes, or even some human resources or acquisitions, perhaps, that same rigor of it cannot see the light of day until it is fully proven or the risk is is totally mitigated. Are those two concepts at tension with one another? 
so yes, I think that's always the tension. And even in a company like ours, because we are clearly, I guess we have, you know, in some ways, I don't want to say we're necessarily a social, social enterprise, but we do have multiple bottom lines. One bottom line is to make money for our investors and all of our stakeholders, which includes our employees and, you know, the field. And secondly, you know, we, we are committed to trying to improve outcomes. Some of our products, as I said, can be very influential in improving outcomes. Others, you know, I think are more kind of basic products, but still have to be made properly, you know, uh, sterilized properly. You know, again, and regulatory is a big piece in all of those things. And there's a tension in the, you know, at, at all stages, whether it's pure product development, which you come up with an idea, then you have to validate that idea. Then you've got to both commercially and, and medically. And then be able to go through the regulatory regimen so that you can offer the products commercially. And that can be, you know, a, a really interesting question. I think you kind of alluded to maybe, you know, like in, in IT, for example, or in, you know, consumer products, when you want to launch a new product, the stakes can be relatively low. You launch a new app. If it's got a technical glitch, you launch you know, three o'clock that afternoon, you launch, you know, version 1.1. And <laughs> the next day you launch version 1.2. On uh, the medical field, that just can't happen. You've got to have a truly validated, to the maximum extent, bulletproof product before b- before you launch. And obviously the regulatory structures both help that and then we'll talk about in some ways hinder that. So innovation is, it's really interesting in a, in a highly regulated field where innovation is to a certain extent, well, I wouldn't say to a certain extent, to a large extent, slowed down. Products, people and product, uh, companies and people would be a lot, could be a lot more innovative if there were fewer regulatory restrictions. But on the other hand, I'm not going to argue that that would be a good thing because, you know, regulatory also keeps products and, and you know, procedures safe and effective. What I think is kind of interesting is if you kind of look at the history of IVF, when it started in the late 70s and obviously into the early 80s, when it was very much a pioneering process and there were very few, if any, IVF-specific products, people had to be innovative. They were using media from the mouse lab. They were using hand-pulled pipettes from, you know, the same thing that they were they would do, you know, using on, on, on zebrafish themselves. So everybody was everybody was innovative. There was no there was no other choice. And then as a field matures, people are looking more for commercial solutions both because of time constraints, you know, they want to be reinventing the wheel every time, as well as proven safety and efficacy. And that has, you know, in in some ways, you could argue that frees up the clinic to focus on the two things they ought to be focusing on, which is patient care and truly being innovative and things that could long-term help the field. Do you want your IVF lab to be at capacity? Do you want one or more of your docs to be busier? Do you want to see more patients at your satellite office before you decide to close the doors on it? But private equity firms are buying up and opening large practice groups across the country and near you. Tech companies are reaching your patients first and selling your own patients back to you. And patients are coming in with more information from the internet and from social media than ever before, for good or for bad, and you need a plan. A fertility marketing system is not just buying some Google ads here or doing 
a couple of Facebook posts here. It's a diagnosis, a prognosis, and a proven treatment plan. Just getting price quotes for a website, for a video, or for SEO, it's like paying for ICSI or donor egg ad hoc without doing testing, without a protocol, and without any consideration of what else might be needed. The first step of building a fertility marketing system is the goal and competitive diagnostic. It's the cornerstone on what your entire strategy is built. You don't have to, but it is best to do that before you hire a new marketing person, before you put out an RFP or look for services, before you get your house in order, because by definition, this is what gets your team in alignment. Fertility Bridge can help you with that. It is better to have a third party do this. We've done it for IVF centers from all over the world, and we only serve businesses who serve the fertility field. It's such an easy way to try us out. It's such a measured way to get your practice leadership aligned, and it's a proven process to begin your marketing system. Without it, practices spend marketing dollars aimlessly and they stress their teams and they even lose patience and market share. Amidst these changes that are happening across our field and across society, if you're serious about growing or even maintaining your practice, sign up for the goal and competitive diagnostic. It's at fertilitybridge.com or linked here in the show notes. There is no downside to doing this for your practice, only upside. Now, back to Inside Reproductive Health. This podcast is one of the examples that you gave where I said last year, I said, we are launching January 3. I don't care. We're putting up a podcast and we're going to have six episodes ready to go. And we, we've experimented with a number of different recording software and different mics. And no matter what I use, it, my guests always sound perfect. And I sound like I'm in a freaking submarine. But And so we invest more in even talking with you before the show. It's like, yeah, we, we've been talking about revamping our onboarding process because my assistant is going back and forth with people. But we always start off with, let's get it launched so we can have the market validated. And then let's reiterate it. And there are some applications that I think are necessary, even in healthcare, even in other places where, you know, we, if, if we were waiting for Office of Civil Rights or Health and Human Services to issue specific cans and can't do's of social media, no doctor would be on social media in, in a 2019 world. We'd still be waiting if that were yeah. the case. And uh, you so, refer, sorry, yeah. please. Yeah, I was going to say you referred to earlier about does the regulatory structure in some ways, maybe the regulatory mindset and the clinical mindset impact and impair clinicians' ability to market. And you're giving an example on social media. But that is a an area that can behave completely differently than clinical practice where you can launch an innovative marketing campaign and you can do A and B testing and you can decide to just cancel it if it doesn't work or slow it down if it's too successful or speed it up if you like it. So there's lots of opportunity to be creative in that area. I can tell you in our companies, and maybe that's because we have come, a lot of the people come from this entrepreneurial background. I don't think we've, I'd like to think about this a little bit more. I hope we're not constrained on our day-to-day operations by there is some there was by obviously some regulatory element around labeling and those things sorts of things, but like our day to day marketing operations by the thinking as you say that it has to be perfect before you launch because marketing doesn't have to be perfect before you launch by definition, most marketing is unproven and you don't really know that it works until you've done it so if you wait for it to be perfect and proven before you launch 
you're going to be paralyzed. You're never going to launch anything. It's an interesting question. I haven't really thought much about how, you know, but do clinic owners by, you know, who historically have been the doctors, though that is changing, you know, it's just their mindset so different that they're going to be much more unwilling to launch new marketing programs until they're quote proven, which means they're, they're destined to be copycats all the time. So yeah, maybe right. I'll throw yeah. a qu- question to you since that's your world. I mean, do you see it that way? Or do you spend your time trying to convince clinicians that it really is something different? We are, so I would say that there's maybe 5% of people who are ready to just try something because they see the value in it. And maybe an example that that answers your question better is when I first came into the field, I knew that a certain quality of video would perform very well for clinics, but video is expensive. If you want good video, it's going to cost several thousand dollars and then more to distribute it and put ads around it and to make several variations of it. So it took me a long time of doing a lower production quality of social media, of getting into the Google Analytics to show different conversions in order to be able to make the case for what I already knew was going to be successful. So I would say by the time in my company's trajectory that we did the le- the quality of video that we knew would be successful from the beginning was three and a half years into when we could have done it from. And partly that's just because I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not new anymore, but I was new five years ago. And that window is narrowing as we start to get more clients. And now we have case studies and now we have more, but there are still things where it's like, I know that this will work, but I need someone to sign off on it. If it's, if it's a client oriented strategy and it still takes a baseline in order to be able to get that. Does that answer the question? Yeah. Yeah, because I'm not really even talking had, about... At you had proof. We yeah. a way to have proof. And I'm not also just talking about things like regulation. I say that regulatory mindset because it has to apply to medicine, but I'm really talking about doctors that don't want to put a Facebook post up if the color is teal instead of turquoise or if the if it's sky blue instead of celeste mm-hmm. or their logo is in the bottom right and it should be a centimeter up from that. So now in the first project that we do with clients, we don't do a full rebrand, but we do at least there is a branding section of the blueprint that we do that we always do before we do any implementation work. And it's a way of slowing clients down to be able to speed them up. Meaning if I can get them to sit down and say, okay, here's our brand guidelines, how we sound, how we don't sound, here's the colors we use, where our logo goes, the type of creative in a brief. If we can get that approved, then the principal physician, in the case of smaller practices, doesn't need to come back in every single uh, every single possible ad campaign. Because to your point, at that point, then it's just a me too strategy. And furthermore, it slows it down to the point where it's simply ineffective. You've taken companies public. So you've you've worked with privately held companies, you've worked with publicly held companies. We read about the differences. How would you describe the pros and cons of operating a publicly held company versus a privately held company? Well, again, I think the a lot of it depends on stage of development. So in the early stages of development, private companies are funded either by 
you know, kind of some combination of personal personal money, friends, family, and then if if the company really has the I mean, maybe maybe the ownership has the ambition, the company has the trajectory, venture capital or private equity funding. So there's a level of just access to capital that's different in the private private markets and the public markets and the public markets. There is always access to capital. It may not be at a price you're interested in. It may not be easy to access, but there is always access to capital. You have shares that you can go out and sell in the market. They're trading every day. And if you need capital, you can go raise more capital. Again, it's not as easy as that. It has implications on share price, has implications on a lot of other things, but access to capital is always there. In the private company, there's a significant tension between where the money is coming from. If Again, just talking about the capital side. So if you're funding it with your own capital, your own cash, or from cash flow from operations, which is not a whole lot different because then when you want to make a growth decision, you have to decide, well, I can either put that cash flow from operations in my pocket, buy a new car, expand, get a vacation home, whatever it is you're interested in doing, or I can invest it back in the business. And that, you know, kind of if you conflate all that, that's effectively an investment decision where you're taking cash out of your pocket even if it never made it into your pocket, you're, you're effectively taking cash out of your pocket and reinvesting in your business. Where if you have third-party capital, granted, there's always a dilution of ownership, but there's also you know a, a spreading of a spreading of risk and spreading of responsibility. So clearly, that's that's one element. The flip side of that is if you you know you're talking about regulatory from a practice perspective and as we're a medical device manufacturing company from the medical device manufacturing marketing perspective there's another whole layer of regulatory that applies to you as a public company we're a relatively small public company but we're held to not, not exactly the same standards as you mentioned general electric not exactly the same standards as general electric but largely the same standards we report our financial results on a quarterly basis we have to you know have our obviously have our results audited we're subject to the oversight by the securities regulators and so at least as it impacts our team that becomes a substantial part of my job so probably a third of my time is spent on what i would call public company issues whether it's you know the combination between regulatory compliance investor relations board of directors oversight in a relatively small public company you may choose a private company you may choose to have a board because they're effectively advisors you may choose to have a board because you're thinking about the future and you want to have a group that holds management to a level of accountability well in the public company world it's real you have to have a board you have to have a board that is independent you have to have a board that whose job is to hold management accountable and you know that's a fairly high level of responsibility for the board members, but also a significantly high level for manage of responsibility for management to keep them adequately informed, so they can make decisions about what is it, you know, what does it mean to be accountable? What what should you be accountable for? And maybe it forces you know management, and I think in a, in a fundamentally good way, to articulate strategy and tactics and timeframes in a way that is more measurable. I think what's interesting we're seeing in the field in general, more I would say at the clinic level than at the 
supplier level where we sit, but I think that may change over time, is a lot more private equity involvement. And private equity is kind of a hybrid between the two. You're certainly not subject to the public company scrutiny and public company reporting requirements, but the private equity owners behave very much like, you know, there's almost a proxy for the public markets. They want the same things the public market wants in terms of reporting, in terms of accountability. So I think it's it's an interesting hybrid. And then, you know, if you look at it, we're, we're seeing more and more, you know, again, it's on a, I think on a worldwide basis, not just in the U.S., but we're seeing more and more of the participants in our field starting to, to going public. So in China, at the end of last year, there was a really significant IPO in the Hong Kong market for a clinic chain, Progeny right now, which is a benefits management company in the US in the process of going public. And there are other companies who have been venture back and private equity back that seem to be to be on that path. So I think we're going to see, which is not that surprising as a field matures from a relatively small niche business to a perceptibly larger and, and more mainstream business that you see both consolidation and public ownership of the, the product of the clinics and the, and the suppliers. You have your eye on these players in the market on your own acquisitions within the last five years. You just got back from China a couple of weeks ago. Where do you see the IVF lab going in the next five years? What are the biggest areas that for opportunity in the IVF lab? So I think there's a, like in many things, there's a dynamic tension that is going on in our field. And I'll get to where the IVF labs, where again, we're seeing more consolidation, whether it's private equity, that or clinics, clinics merging, or as I said, you know, even, even public markets where clinics are getting together and then being either going public or being bought by these public entities. So I think we're seeing, we're going to see over the next five years, use your time frame, a lot more consolidation. I would still bear in mind that our, our field is still highly, highly fragmented on a worldwide basis. It's roughly 5,000 clinics in the U.S., roughly 500. And even the largest clinic chains are still in the, you know, can vary, you know, on a regional basis, you could have a clinic chain that's fairly, fairly significant. I wouldn't say dominant, but fairly significant in the market. But even on a, you know, if you look at a worldwide basis, the, the largest clinic chains are single digit percentages, you know, top, low single digit percentages of the overall field. So there's a long way to go before this market, if it would ever consolidate to, you know, to a point where there are, you know, really a, a you know, relatively small number of very, very dominant players. I think that's it's possible, but that's going to be a long way out. And when, one of the things that consolidation has brings is, again, that dynamic tension a lot. There's a lot to be said for consolidation and standardization of procedures. So some of the clinics that have done um, consolidation, you know, they have very, very strong standardized processes, very strong, as you can say, in the U.S., maybe a national lab director really drives quality and consistency in the lab. And other labs have chosen to have a much more decentralized process or clinic chains, I'm going to say, has a decentralized process that even though there is common ownership and common sharing maybe of certain kinds of activities, a lot of the individual clinics operate independently and can do what they need to do. And you can argue both sides. Obviously, in a more kind of distributed decision-making model, there's a lot more opportunity for creativity and innovation. So I think one of the things we all think about is what is the innovation that's going to come out of the labs. 
in a much more consolidated model, you can argue and you can see it in some cases where the kind of the lab management, the lab directors, you know, in a way are freed from a lot of the day-to-day decision-making about how to, you know, do, do, you know, changing, changing processes and the labs themselves are able to devote a lot more resources because they're bigger to innovation and they're actually doing much more, less kind of, I wouldn't say that the distributed model has more seat of the pants innovation, but a much, much more organized, focused and, and budgeted innovation. So long story short, I think we're going to see some meaningful innovation coming out of the labs over the next Five years, some of the areas that clearly people are looking at is improving quality control. So you're seeing that through both software systems and, you know, I think maybe some, uh, you know, storage mechanisms and those kinds of things. And automation. Automation is another area where, you know, I think there's going to be a natural tendency, particularly in the labs that want to have more standardized operations to automate certain functions. Again, so everybody does it the same way, is held to exactly the same standards. And as our field grows, and with the, I don't know if I'd say it's going to grow exponentially, but I think the growth is going to be faster over the next five years than it is over even the last five years. There's clearly a shortage of really skilled embryologists and lag technicians. So to the extent you can automate certain relatively you know, more routine functions, on the one hand, you can leverage that 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 skill base. And on the other hand, to the extent you can automate some of the highly, highly skilled functions, you can allow more productivity from essentially the same the same team. In concluding with our audience, I'd like you to be able to share anything you feel is important that you haven't shared in the episode thus far. But I'd also like you to share any concerns you might have with consolidation and what's in the future for Hamilton Thorne? All right. So that's a, that's a, lot, <laughs> that's a lot of topics. So let me start with you know the, the, the concerns about consolidation. I think I've learned that it doesn't pay to, to fight the tide of history. So consolidation is clearly something that you see in every field as it matures. And the IVF world is clearly going from what was perceived even five to 10 years ago as a very small, niche, kind of out of the way, out of the mainstream field to much more central to people's thinking. So I think, you know, fighting consolidation is not going to be a winning strategy in the long run. That being said, I think there's still lots of room for creative, innovative, entrepreneurial operators, whether they're at the clinic level or the supplier level. And again, as I referred to earlier, as the field gets bigger and more more interesting from a capital markets perspective, there's going to be a lot more opportunity for funding those exciting innovations. So I, I think overall, you know, I think I'm positive about the, you know, the, the, the business dynamics and the things that would make you, you know, me more negative, I just think are so far out. And again, because of the nature where a lot of clinics are publicly owned and nonprofits versus privately owned. I think the idea of, you know, kind of monopoly like consolidation in our in our field is is very remote, very hard to hard to believe. And that's probably the only negative that one can can see of consolidation. So and I think for Hamilton Thorne, we view ourselves and in, in a way as part of the inevitable consolidation. And we, you know, probably five years ago had to decide, you know, do we want to be consolidated or be a consolidator? And we've decided we want to be a consolidator. We are doing it on a relatively slow pace, as I mentioned, about one acquisition a year. And I think that we can continue to do that and grow our business both 
organically, grow our business through acquisition, and probably most importantly, provide better products and services to our customers for for a good long time. David Wolf, President and CEO of Hamilton Thorne, thank you very much for coming on Inside Reproductive Health. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed it. You've been listening to the Inside Reproductive Health Podcast with Griffin Jones. If you're ready to take action to make sure that your practice thrives beyond the revolutionary changes that are happening in our field and in society, visit fertilitybridge.com to begin the first piece of the fertility marketing system, the goal and competitive diagnostic. Thank you for listening to Inside Reproductive Health.